0: The file is for personal use to share with friends, family, and colleagues. But please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship. I'll be lecturing on um, topic. Which I've done a little bit of work on before, and I sort of reworked it, and and I'm presenting some of the same ideas, but just scrambled up a bit and re reorganized. Um, and the lecture is entitled "The Healthy Fear of the Lord." <clears throat> and uh, yeah, we think of healthy fear. It's a sort of a weird a weird term. Um, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time just defining what I mean by that. Um, and, and then we'll move on. So uh, usually, you know, if I ask myself, how, how would I go about finding out whether my fear was healthy or not? Uh, in ordinary life, fear is never pleasant to experience. Um, but still, there are situations uh, where it actually is, is good. It's a good thing, uh, a right and appropriate thing, even though it's experienced as, as a negative thing. Uh, We could ask the obvious questions, what am I afraid of, which is another way of saying what what is the object of my fear. Um, We could ask the question, is my fear appropriate to that object, or am I being a reactionary or overblown, dramatic? And then we could also ask, what is the fruit of that fear? What what does it lead to? Uh, Fear often leads us to other things, and uh, what it produces in us is another question I would want to ask if I was trying to think of, like, is this is this a healthy and a good thing, or is it not? Uh, when I talk about a healthy fear, I mean fear that is appropriate to its object, and so it's reasonable given the situation. So if I, um, forgive my silly illustrations, but if I have a terrible fear of extension cords, um, that is not a healthy Fear, because extension cords do not pose a real danger to me in any way. Um, my fear doesn't protect me from anything. It's unproductive because it's not appropriate to its object, so it doesn't really bear any good fruit. Doesn't lead to anything worthwhile. Um, if I live in constant fear of being eaten by a tiger. Uh, I like to read stories about man-eating tigers. It's one of my things. Um, but if I, if I was to live in constant fear of being chased and eaten by a tiger, that actually is a scary thing, and tigers actually are dangerous, right? So that maybe this is more of a rational fear. But still, the likelihood of me being attacked by a tiger um, here in Metro West is so small um, that that fear should really not be a big part of my life, um, in the sense it's inappropriate to the object, in the sense that it's just not likely that this will ever happen. Um, earlier this year, uh, during the summer, uh, some of you will know all about this story, I was on the roof of my house and uh, scraping some paint off of one of the gables, and I injured my wrist. Uh, I thought quite badly at the time. I didn't really know. And I felt myself uh, myself starting to lose consciousness. And as I was passing out, I was afraid right um, in this case, I was right to be afraid because you know the prospect of plummeting off the roof unconscious and breaking my neck uh legitimately scary thing, and at the time seemed fairly likely um, so it was a, it was appropriate fear it it uh, has caused me to well, at the moment, it calls me to call out to somebody on the ground who came up to help me, sort of was able to anchor myself in place a little bit, and it has changed my behavior since. So there's these are some of the things that have come. I'm not allowed on the roof anymore, for instance, you know, among, among other things. Um, and so uh, those are all sort of uh, real-life, everyday kind of examples, but a fear of the Lord, as the Bible refers to it, It's a very particular, I would say it's a very particular kind of reasonable fear. Uh, It's a kind of spiritual common sense. And this is because it's a fear that is appropriate to its object. Uh, Not water, not tigers, um, not falling off the roof, uh, but fear of God, our Maker, the Creator of the whole cosmos. He's the one who made us, sustains everything in the universe. Uh, He's the one that has no beginning and no end. And he's really there. He's really real. He really sees us. Uh, When this God is the object, fear is appropriate. But fear of God also produces good things, it bears good fruit. So for these reasons, I think the fear of the Lord is, if, if rightly understood, is a, is a healthy thing. Not, and I want to make this clear from the beginning, not in the sense that we should practice fear of the Lord for our health, as if that's the point. Um, this is not just a sort of a therapeutic uh, point that I'm trying to make. Rather, it's truthful for us to fear God. Uh, and for this reason, it's also good for us. Uh, it's both a, To fear God is both a sign of spiritual health, the spiritual healthy people fear God, and it also leads to spiritual health. Uh, but the fear of the Lord is a particular kind of fear, and it is easily misunderstood, and I think Christian people have often been un- uncomfortable with the idea, or, or that word, or that rhetoric. What does it mean to be afraid, or to fear the Lord? Um, Christians that I know, most of the Christians that I know, do not talk about fearing God as a positive part of their daily faith. That's not, that's not language that I often hear. Maybe, maybe you all have, um, can say differently, but I hear, I hear people talk about their love for God and their awareness of his love for them, uh, wonder, intimacy, uh, or maybe, maybe feelings of distance from God. Uh, where is he? I don't, I'm not sure if he notices me. Uh, But I never hear people say, I never hear people talk about it positively, as in, my walk with God is going well. I've been really fearing him. Um, And that may, people, some people are terribly afraid of God uh, in a way that is wholly negative. um, Or people may be fearing God rightly without calling it fear. I don't know. (laughs) But in any case, um, it's not something that is, is part of common parlance. At least, uh, in my experience, uh, even though it's all over the Bible, so one of the one of the best known, very short verses uh, about the fear of the Lord is in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In other words, fearing Him is the starting place or the foundation of real wisdom. Everything that is built on the fear of the Lord will be wise, in other words. And knowledge built on anything else will be foolishness. But to our ears, healthy fear of the Lord can sound uh, troubling or, or paradoxical. Healthy fear, what do we mean? Um, my hope for this lecture is basically to, to show that it's not really as much of a paradox as we think um and I also want to just reflect on why this particular kind of fear is, is appropriate um, when it comes to the Lord of the universe. So to do this, I want to distinguish how we usually think about fear with all of the connotations and, uh, that accompany that word, and, uh, and then turn to how the Bible speaks about fearing God and just look at that. Most of the lecture will be, will be looking at what does the Bible mean when it talks about fear of the Lord. Um, the outline is very simple It's basically there's two main sections what are contemporary views of fear which which create confusion for us uh and then how is fearing god different from that um and then we'll get into some of the details later um <clears throat> so contemporary views of fear i'm, I'm not a psychologist i'm not going to go very deep here at all i'm just going to talk about sort of shooting from the hip how we how we tend to think about fear Uh think about it as a negative emotion. Like I said before, we experience fear as painful. It feels bad to be afraid. It's stressful. It's exhausting. Um, It is often an underlying emotional state that drives other negative things in our life, other negative emotions or other negative behaviors. Uh, So anger, for example, is sometimes, uh, not always, but sometimes referred to as a secondary emotion flowing out of a deeper fear that maybe is not even identified in us, but so we sometimes we are human beings tend to lash out in anger for reasons that may be mysterious to our friends and family, uh, but it's because we're actually really afraid, and so the fear isn't necessarily what presents itself uh, <clears throat> on the surface, but it's functioning under the surface. Uh, as we've already seen, the fact that fear is a negative emotion does not mean that it is always bad to be afraid. So uh, there are moments in life when it's obviously good to be afraid, like when the, when the tiger is really chasing you. Um, we still experience it as negative and painful, but sometimes it's the only right response to a bad or dangerous thing in the fallen world that we live in. And actually you could argue that fear is, is a God-given response that's designed to protect us. If we we had no fear at all, we would be in much more trouble much more often. right? Um, So one of the reasons the fear of God is hard for contemporary people to relate to, I think, is that it seems totally opposed to the other essential aspects of our relationship with God. It doesn't seem to harmonize well with everything else that we think about when we think about our relationship to Him. When we think of our relationship with God... We want to think about his love, his peace, his patience, his forgiveness, his acceptance, uh, maybe uh, intimacy with him. We think of the security that we have in him. These are all good and true um, and good things to reflect on and hope in. But fear seems to create a paradoxical tension with each of these other things. And I think the reason it does that is because um, this is the way it plays out in human relationships. Say, in a, in a marriage, for instance, uh, loyalty, love, joyful submission are good things, but fear within a marriage, not a good thing. Uh, a person is not supposed to be afraid of their spouse. If, if your loyalty and love and submission are offered to your spouse out of fear, um, then none of those things is being offered freely to the other. Your relationship is in, is in deep trouble. Um, it's not genuine love or loyalty that's offered from fear. And for that reason, fear is not a long-term healthy motivator in any relationship. Um, in fact, it's a characteristic of, of manipulative and abusive relationships very often. So that's the very opposite of healthy. <clears throat> So fear, in the ordinary sense of the word, uh, should not be a part of loving human relationships. So why is it a good thing when it comes to God, we may ask. Uh, I think all this makes the Bible's language about fearing God sort of confusing. What does God want, or why does God want us to fear him? What's his problem, Uh is that uh, his sort of sick way of maintaining control over us? Um, we go to church to be fed, to be taught, to be reminded of God's love, to be encouraged by the fellowship. We don't go to church to be afraid. So, um, an added layer of difficulty. Remember, I'm talking about the, the reasons why fear of the Lord is a hard thing to get our minds around and is, is confusing to us sometimes. Another added layer of difficulty here is that uh, for many Christians... Uh, We associate the language of fearing God with actual teaching about hellfire and brimstone. Um, Maybe you've been brought up in a home or in a church in which God seemed impossible to please. uh, Perpetually disapproving. Maybe anger or, or wrath was viewed as one of God's eternal attributes. Part of his very essence forever. Which actually it's not. Theologically, that's a mistake, I think. Um, but maybe that's the way it has been talked about, that, that anger is just, a, is just an aspect of who God is, um, one of his attributes. And as a result, he will always be angry and unpredictable. Even though Jesus somehow saves us from this fate, God's overall demeanor towards us remains one of hostility. He is someone who's looking for any excuse to reject you, uh, but grudgingly accepts you. Um, Maybe this is how some of us view God. Um, This theology, I think, is inaccurate to the Bible. Uh, It's certainly incomplete. Uh, And as a result, fearing God uh, has become a distorted thing, a very distorted thing in, in some of our minds, I think. So... It's a fear, uh, this kind of fear is, is really a fear of a negative opinion of you that God has, and a fear of what he might do to you, because he's powerful and bad-tempered, and he's the judge. Um, so this has to do with a fear of punishment very often, a fear of harm, uh, or fear of just intense eternal disapproval. Now, fear of what God can do, it's not irrelevant. I'm not trying to say that, no, no, don't forget about all that. Uh, The Bible does sometimes refer to the fear of God in this way. Uh, So Jesus, in Matthew 10, says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So, it is actually the case, (laughs) biblically speaking, that God has the authority to decide my eternal future and yours. Uh, So this should be deeply sobering to us. This is not something to scoff at or just ignore because it's, it's uncomfortable. Um... But my point I'm trying to make here is if we take this to be all that is meant by fear of the Lord, we will misunderstand much of what the Bible is teaching us. This isn't the only understanding of fear of the Lord that the Bible shows us. Uh, we'll misunderstand God if we, if we take this to be the, the sum total of what fearing God means. Uh the fear of the Lord, as the Bible presents it, is, is uh, a deeper, richer, more complex thing, certainly a more life-giving thing than the simple fear of punishment. In fact, in the Bible, it's the people who fear God rightly who have nothing to fear from God's judgment. This is, this is sort of the irony of it. It's the people that fear God rightly that have nothing to fear. So fearing God means being at peace with God in the Bible. And because of this, it's actually a beautiful and refreshing way to live. It's not a, it's not a picture to live as someone that fears the Lord is you, it would be a mistake to think of it as you're cowering, you know, all the time uh, expecting lightning to fall from the sky or something like that. Um, it's actually a way of, a way of flourishing that, that the fear of punishment can never be if that's all there is to it. So, what does the Bible mean? I'm going to um, talk now just about what, um, how fearing the Lord in the Bible is different from the, our understanding of fear in everyday life. The Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord as a great and wonderful thing. The fear of the Lord is inseparable. If you sort of take the Bible as a whole and look at all the different passages that talk about fearing God, it's inseparable from loving Him. It's inseparable from faithfulness and loyalty to Him, and it's inseparable from joyful obedience. All those things are associated with fearing God. In other words, it's something without which we really don't have a relationship with God at all. And there are two different ways, I think, there may be many ways of looking at this, but I decided to break it into these two categories for tonight. Um, there's two different ways that we see the fear of God referred to in the Bible. Um, yep, there they are. Um, there are stories about fearful encounters with God. Stories about real people in the Bible. Uh, accounts of people being afraid when God reveals Himself to them or confronts them in some way. And the Bible is full of lots of stories like this. So those I just call that fearful encounters. And then secondly, there's also the ordinary fear of the Lord that for God's people is basically the daily backbone of faith the sort of spiritual common sense that I was referring to. Uh, this is what I want to build towards. This is really the main thing I want to talk about, but I'm, um, uh, hopefully there'll be time to do that. <laughs> uh, so basically, what what does fearing the Lord mean uh, in ordinary circumstances? So, i uh, will start with the fearful encounters and just look at some examples of what I mean there. Um <clears throat> What can we learn from some of these encounters? And and I'm just going to pick, I'm going to list a couple just so you get a sense of the kind of things I'm talking about, and then we'll look more closely at one or two. Um, In scripture, true encounters with God, even the most mediated ones, you think even even if it's it's just like an angel coming to say something to you, uh, all of these experiences are fear-filled experiences, whether it's... Adam and Eve hiding in the garden after they've eaten the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And they hear God coming, essentially, whatever that means. And they're afraid. Uh, Moses, at the burning bush in the book of Exodus, uh, is sort of struck with this holy fear. Uh, the commissioning of Isaiah in the temple, uh, in Isaiah 6, is a fascinating description of, of fear of the Lord, essentially. Uh, in the book of Daniel, um, the Babylonian king Belshazzar, who sees the writing, the handwriting on the wall, uh, telling him that his kingdom is done, experiences fear of the Lord. Uh, the shepherds, when the angels announce the birth of Jesus, are terrified. The disciples in the boat, when Jesus stills the storm, are terrified. The guards at the tomb, after the resurrection, who appear to be dead, after seeing the angel, uh, they're so scared that, the, that they, they appear to be dead. Um, the early church, when Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for lying to God in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul getting blinded and knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. These are all um, more direct encounters with the Lord, the presence of God, than most of us have ever had or maybe ever will have. And without fail, they're, they're experiences of deep um dismay and fear. Each person in these accounts experiences intense fear, and this is the case even when God's purpose in the encounter is not to bring judgment, but to announce good news. It's still fear. <laughs> so when the when the news is good, it usually begins with the words fear not. <clears throat> Uh, for example, when the, the angels bring the message of the birth of Jesus to the, the shepherds, do not be afraid. We bring you news of great joy. Uh, when God delivers bad news, if he's coming in rebuke or judgment, he does not say fear not. Uh, Belshazzar does not get a fear not from God. Um, so what are some of the characteristics of these of these fearful encounters? Uh, these are not experiences in which people have warm emotional feelings towards God. Uh, comfort might be the end result, but it's not—it's never the initial response. Uh, I'm not sure we would call any of these encounters mountaintop experiences if we had been there. Um, as in, by mountaintop experience, I mean something that's moving and inspiring to me, uh, but in which I'm basically still in my comfort zone. <laughs> Neither do these people come away from encountering God with an impression of spiritual unity or harmony. In, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, it's the enlightened person who can look at all the diversity and all the distinctions in the world and perceive that there's oneness to all things. Uh, the trees, the sky, me, myself, God, good and evil, are all one and and the the appearance of all those distinctions is really an an illusion within within Buddhist thought. Um, And within Buddhism, if I can see that all these things are essentially one, this is what it means to see clearly. Uh, This is not how the Bible describes encounters with God at all. Uh, There's no blurring of distinctions, particularly between the individual and God. And I think... In contrast, these encounters, uh, what's experienced, is the extreme heightening of distinctions. Um, there's a, a perception of difference that is so stark uh, that it's to the point of being painful. And I think this is the root of the fear that we see in a lot of these stories in the Bible. Uh, it's a perception of extremely heightened distinctions, not not the blurring of lines, but the, but the uh, the clarity of lines and uh, we'll just move on to, I'll try to explain what I mean by that um, the first and most basic distinction which is very very clear uh, is, is the distinction between creature and creator uh, in the presence of God's majesty and enormity and power people become painfully aware of their own smallness, their dependence and their fragility In the presence of the living God and all his overwhelming vitality, we seem to be barely alive. Um, In the presence of the Alpha and Omega, the the Eternal One himself, uh, the One who has no beginning and no end, we are made painfully aware of the tiny duration of our own lives. Uh, something my dad has often said, it's just a funny way of putting it, that you know, uh, each of us is a very, very recent event. Um, you are a very, very recent event, and all the things that you hold to be immensely important are very recent events. Uh, all of our concerns amount to hardly a blip on the geological timeline, and the geological timeline is hardly a blip on God's timeline. Uh, he invented geology and time, as Joshua said a couple weeks ago, time is a creature, like us. We think of it as some big um, conundrum of physics or philosophy or how to understand time. Essentially, it's it's one of God's creatures. Uh, so we have a very recent beginning, but he has no beginning. And this is an aspect of... Uh, I think these the things that I've just been talking about, these are some aspects of what a heightened creature-creator distinction might feel like the common thread is that there's absolutely no doubt or confusion who is God and who is not. God is God, I am not. Uh, Christianity is very unlike Buddhism in this respect. The distinctions are very, very plain, and they stay plain. He is the maker, we are the ones made. He is the provider, we are the dependents. Uh, he is unchanging and dependable, we are tossed about and unstable um, the creature-creator distinction is terrifyingly clear. So, um, this kind of fear is often referred to as awe, which is this um, this word that tries to encapsulate reverence and fear and wonder all together. Uh, these encounters are sort of the ultimate disruption of daily life or the status quo. If you think of the status quo of daily life, which are filled with Uh, visible, physical, quantifiable things, uh, where we work hard and make things happen, where we can, uh, explain what's happening sometimes. Uh, the Bible has many accounts in which the supernatural is revealed in the natural world or unveiled, uh, in the everyday. So, uh, people encounter in the world the one who is beyond the world and, and, and it's, and it's a source of great fear. Um disruptive is maybe too gentle a world it's deeply jarring, it's simply not the way things are, right think about the Annunciation when when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary Um, took place on an ordinary day Uh, we don't know exactly what she was doing but you can sort of imagine some, some, some sacred art portrays her as like hanging the laundry or kneading bread or whatever maybe at some point between kneading bread and hanging the laundry um the angel Gabriel is announcing the fulfillment of God's ancient plan in Mary's living room and then goes away. <laughs> um, Mary is troubled and is told to not be afraid. So there's a sense, even for the people who faithfully believe in God, that he is more real than they ever really believed. You get a sense that they might have said afterwards, uh, I must have only half believed my whole life. Right? That's how. Um, I mean, maybe some of us, maybe God is much more real than we really want him to be in some corner of our hearts. And yet his, his weightiness is almost crushing. He's that real. So, uh, this kind of idea of the weightiness of God is often referred to in the Bible as glory, um, that God is spirit does not mean he is somehow insubstantial. Uh, It simply means that under ordinary circumstances we cannot see him. uh, Why would the foundation of all existence be less substantial than the things he makes? Why would the maker of the Himalayas, uh, even though he's invisible, why would he be wispy and ethereal? He's not. (laughs) Um, And you get a sense of this in a lot of the, the, uh, the the ways in which the word glory is used. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were afraid. Uh, his glory fills the temple in Isaiah 6 and and the, the temple starts to smoke and the pillars shake. Um, so I sum up all of this, all of this rambling as the creature-creator distinction. Uh, when people encounter the glory of the Lord, it's overwhelming and they feel their creatureliness. It's not a word, but but you know what I mean. Um, And uh, which is is to say our insubstantiality, our frailty, our our ignorance, our smallness. I'm just going to make a few observations about that distinction, the creature-creator distinction. Uh, I think it's important to note that it's not simply a fear of what God will do to you. It's different than that. It's not the same thing. Although that may be part of it. Uh, we are at the mercy of God, who can do anything. That is a scary thought, of course, but it's it's not just a fear of what God might do, is it? It's it would be better to call it a fear simply that He is, or that He has come near. Uh, I think um, think of what must have been going through the minds of the of the disciples in the boat with Jesus in, in Matthew eight. I'm not going to actually read the passage, but I'll just refer to it, and hopefully it's familiar enough. Um, the disciples know, like everybody knows, that waves and weather patterns don't listen to anybody. They don't listen to people. Um, they don't have ears. Even if they did, they do their own thing, pretty much. The weather does. Uh, people need to just adapt to what the weather is doing. Um, right now, Hurricane Ian is pummeling the southeast right now, uh, Georgia and Florida. Um, it would do very little, in fact, no good, to stand on the shoreline and yell, stop. This is what everybody knows. This is what the disciples knew. Um, Jesus speaks words. Uh, doesn't even say that he yells. Just speaks to the inanimate, deaf, brutal forces of nature. And they obey him in the same way that, that uh, an obedient child wouldn't would, would obey a parent. Um the Jesus Storybook Bible has a wonderful way of saying it. This is just a paraphrase, but, but it says, The wind and the waves recognize the voice that they heard at creation. <laughs> um, so the disciples are terrified as a result. And the fear is different from the fear of drowning. Uh, that was the fear they experienced before Jesus stilled the storm. Uh, they weren't even afraid that Jesus would obliterate them. Uh, Their fear of dying had been replaced by something totally different. Uh, Ironically, it was Jesus' act of saving them that made them so afraid. And they ask, who is this? (laughs) Who is this? They're terrified at who his power has revealed him to be. And yet they trust him, and they know him. So the boat, in a sense, is too small to be in with this person. Uh... But would they want to be anywhere else? No. They trust him. They know him. Nobody jumps out of the boat when Jesus does this. <laughs> the only person in the New Testament to jump out of a boat on purpose was Peter, and that's to be near Jesus. <laughs> right. uh, so uh, it's not so much the fear of what Jesus will do to them. It's more the fear that he is. The fear of who he is. He has completely obliterated their lifelong assumptions as to what is possible and what is impossible by being a human being with the authority of Yahweh. So that's the first observation. It's not—it's not about being afraid of what God will do. It's about—it's just, it's just the fear of of who He is, <laughs> that He is. Secondly, this kind of heightened creature-creator distinction is not God's attempt to intimidate anyone. He's not putting on a show for some sort of effect. It's simply people seeing the truth more clearly than they normally see it. God is glorious and we are tiny and insubstantial by comparison. That is just a fact. And it's, uh, it's just that most of the time we're not exposed to this extreme a reminder of that fact. So the veil is being temporarily pulled aside and people are being exposed to raw, unfiltered reality. And it makes us realize that in ordinary daily life, God's glory is highly mediated. Uh, We are protected and buffered from it by God himself every day. Uh, Last observation, uh, this aspect of fearing the Lord is not a result of something going wrong, exactly, either. Um, Small and finite is how God created us to be. We are supposed to be keenly aware of our fragility and our dependence on him. That's, that's, that's a response to how God made things. In other words, people in the Bible who experience the creature-creator fear are responding appropriately to something that's not their fault. I'm a creature. I'm not supposed to be anything else. Uh, however, and this is it has to be nuanced here, and, um, while being finite is not the result of sin people never experience fear of God in isolation from the reality of sin. In other words, whenever someone in Scripture encounters God, it is never just as a creature. It's as a creature and a sinner. And so this brings us to another aspect of, of, of the fearful encounters uh, with the Lord, and it's what I would call the, um, the unholy-holy distinction. It's not just that people tend to feel small and fragile and dependent uh, in the presence of God. Uh, Accompanying that sort of shock is a terribly heightened awareness of our moral unfitness to be in God's presence. And this is an experience of our own sinfulness as an objective problem, not in the way that uh, much of our culture wants us to think about sin as just, well, if you feel bad about something, it's really an internal, psychological, subjective reality. Nobody can uh, can tell you that you've d- actually done anything objectively wrong. Well, this is not that. It's it's a keen awareness that my sin is actually objectively a problem. Um, and this is another experience of heightened distinction. God is holy, and I am not holy. And uh, as many of you, I'm sure, are... are I certainly have felt this uh many times in my life, but holiness is just a tricky concept to get to get right in our heads. Uh and I think for a lot of people it's because it needs to have a lot of negative and unhelpful associations kind of stripped away from it. What does holiness mean? Sometimes when we hear the word holy we just think um a self-righteous person. <laughs> right. um, but that's not the essence of what holiness is. <clears throat> When we say that God is holy, we mean that he's utterly and infinitely good. Uh, Morally perfect. This is not because there is a law above him that he's just really good at obeying. That's not what being morally perfect means for God. Rather, goodness itself originates from his character. So good things are good because they echo or quote or suggest his presence and his character. That's what goodness means. Uh, why is a beautiful meal good? Why is generosity to a stranger in need good? Why is forgiving other people who have harmed you good? Why is fighting injustice good? Because they each in their own way point, uh, point to or touch on God's holiness, which is the foundation of all goodness. Uh, so rather than imagine... Uh, pictures of, of stuffy self-righteousness. When you hear the word holy, holiness should call to mind something, you know, far off, but infinitely beautiful. Something to love and long for. Uh, it's only because God is holy that goodness is a thing. So that makes me want to praise him, because uh, in a world that's as twisted and evil as as this world, I'm so glad that someone is Holy. There's, there's such a thing as goodness that is untwisted and unblemished and uncorrupted. Even if I don't see that goodness in myself, it's real. God is holy. <clears throat> but because holiness is moral perfection and God is a judge and the giver of the law, uh, God in his holiness cannot look upon sin. And it's against his very nature to tolerate sin. Psalm 5, uh, verse 5 says, The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Uh, another passage, from this time from Habakkuk, the very opening of, of the prophet Habakkuk, who is really he's crying out to God for justice. He knows that God is just, and yet he sees violence and injustice in the street every day. And he says this, this is Habakkuk, um, starting in chapter 1, verse 12. He's just been told by the Lord that, and he's complaining about this, <laughs> he's just been told that the Chaldeans, who are Israel's wicked but powerful neighbors, will be God's instrument of judgment on Israel. Now, the Chaldeans are going to come through and, and sack you. and um, It's because you've been unfaithful. And, and Habakkuk is like, they're worse than us. Why, why are you using them to discipline people who are more righteous? Anyway, But in the midst of this sort of complaint to God, he he says something quite interesting. Uh, He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So, it's interesting, in order to complain to God, Habakkuk is reminding God of the nature of holiness. What do you mean, God? Like, God, you're holy. Remember what that means? It means you can't look at this stuff. Evil and sin is, is just, like, abhorrent to you. Uh, why? Anyway, it goes on. But, but his, his, he's really reflecting on the nature of holiness. Evil cannot stand and will not stand in its presence and yet of course we know all people have sinned we uh, have willfully walked away from his definition of what goodness is from his character uh we are arrogant and we continue to be we do wrong and we continue to to do wrong uh, as a result we are unclean before him in our sin so as we live day to day in the broken world, interacting with other sinners, we become quite comfortable with our sin, actually. And this is one of the the, the dangers of, of just living a human life. Uh, it's like a bad outfit that we're so used to wearing that doesn't bother us anymore that it's so bad, so ugly. Uh, we're just used to it. Even for Christians who really believe and want to strive to live Christ-like lives, our sin is so familiar sometimes that we seldom fully appreciate the offense that it is to God. Um, but when people in the Bible are confronted by the Lord, they undergo a complete change in their perception of sin. They're not comfortable with it anymore. Uh, in the presence of God's holiness, their sin is simply a liability. It's a danger to them. It's like, not that this is actually scientifically correct, but, uh, it's like wearing red and walking into a bull ring. I don't think bulls can even see red, but you know the, the the idea that you know you wave a red flag, the bull charges you. It's like you find yourself in a bull ring wearing nothing but red. You're like, <laughs> you know, anyway, um, it's a liability. <clears throat> um, and so what are some examples of this in scripture? Um, the the most foundational one. I'm just going to leave this on the screen while I talk about some of the other ones. Is Adam and Eve in the garden? The very first moment in which human beings feel the consequence of sin. Um, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. It's extremely telling how the Bible describes the immediate impact that sin has on Adam and Eve's uh, self-perception, how they view themselves. The day before God's holiness would not have caused them to run and hide. Um, but now they were they were aware of their guilt. Uh, they experienced existentially a dreadful feeling of, of exposure being laid bare before God. Uh, physical nakedness is the least of their problems. Uh, they were ashamed as a result of their sin. Uh, in the presence uh, of God. And in the presence of God was no longer a safe place to be for them, which is why God, in His mercy, uh, protects them and sends them away from His presence. <clears throat> Isaiah 6, I've already mentioned it once before. I don't think I have a slide for this, I'll just read it. Um, this is when uh, Isaiah is first commissioned to be a prophet to the people of Israel, and he has a vision of the Lord in the temple. And the hem of the Lord's garment fills the entire temple. This is where the glory fills fills the temple and the foundation shakes and it fills with smoke. And he says this, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. So, uh, it's It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. It's it's amazing uh, and rich and full. Um, But Isaiah, upon seeing the glory of the Lord fill the temple, high and lifted up, he says, he does not uh, run for cover from falling rocks. This is not the kind of fear we're talking about. Uh, He wants to run for cover from God's holiness. Uh, He's made aware in a totally new way of the sinfulness of his speech. And he feels a sense of corporate guilt. I'm a part of a people whose speech is sinful. Um, In this text, I think there's this powerful foreshadowing of what the Lord does to make people with unclean lips clean again. Uh, This picture of atonement where the the coal touches his mouth and his sin has been dealt with and taken away. Um, Fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> last example before we turn on turn to the, our last section is the the miraculous catch of fish uh, when jesus in the beginning of his ministry is looking for uh is is gathering his disciples he finds peter and some of his other fishermen friends um he instructs peter to, to throw the net over to the other side of the boat peter grudgingly does it and they catch so many fish he doesn't even know what to do with it and he realizes that you know this is not an ordinary person with me in the boat. And he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinner. Which is a weird thing to say. Um, people often joke about, or at least I've heard people maybe once or twice joke about, you know, this would have been a great time to say, let's be business partners. Uh, same time tomorrow. <laughs> right? you know, that would have been smart, right? Um, or even, what manner of man is this? Who are you? No, that's not even what he says. Uh he says, "Depart from me for I'm a sinner." Like, where did Peter's sin come into the equation? Jesus didn't rebuke him for anything. Uh, <clears throat> uh, he feels the danger of his own sin uh, and, the, and the danger that opposes to him, and he asks Jesus to leave. I think he's made aware through the miracle that he's in the presence of actual holiness for the first time, maybe um, so, in each of these examples, people feel undone, not because God is big and they're small, but because they're morally flawed to the core, and and God is the Holy One. So, uh, I want to move on from this whole section. The reality is most of us in life will never have this kind of fear-filled encounter with the Lord. Um, so, I think the more pressing and relevant question, perhaps, is... What does fear of the Lord mean on those days which are completely normal? Uh, those days in which the veil of reality is not torn back, uh, but we're just faced with practical decisions and mundane tasks to do, which is, which is, uh, describes most of life, doesn't it? Um, <clears throat> so what is daily ordinary fear of the Lord? The Bible talks about this kind of fear as well. And when it does, it's not talking about falling, you know, prostrate on the ground for fear of being destroyed. Rather, daily fear of the Lord is a choice. It's a way of life. It's a decision to live in light of God's transcendence and holiness when neither of those things are immediately evident to us. Say that again. It's it's a decision to live in light of God's transcendence and holiness when neither of those th- of those things are immediately evident. In other words, it's believing in faith that God is God and I am not, that God is holy and I am not. And this faith is what calls us to make choices every day according to what he says is good, not according to what I think is good. Um, it's in a sense, fear of the Lord is, is God consciousness being aware and alert to the fact that he is real, he is present, he is here. Um, it's a little bit like the definition that I've heard once of, of, the, of what character means. What is character? We talk about someone's character. It's, it's how you live when no one is watching. <laughs> Basically, the decisions you make when you're not doing anything for the sake of impressing or for the sake of pleasing anybody else, but it's what you do from your own heart because you want to. So daily fear of the Lord is, is similar. Uh, how do we choose to live during all those times when we are not exposed to God's terrifying glory? And this is really, when the Bible uses fear in this, in this, uh, by this definition, it's really synonymous with righteousness. Those who fear the Lord uh, are the people that actually uh, strive to please Him. So, uh I'll turn to a couple more biblical examples here for this. Psalm nineteen, it's a fascinating psalm in general, with lots of interesting things in it about creation and seeing the work of Lord of the Lord in the whole created order. Um verses seven through nine go like this, though. Uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Um, This little verse about fear is kind of placed in the middle of a series of statements about God's law and obedience to God's law. Uh, laws, statutes, precepts, commands, fear, decrees. (laughs) It seems out of place at first, doesn't it? Um, I think this is a typical example of Hebrew Hebrew poetry that uses parallelism. It it, it uses phrases that are similar to each other to to both be emphatic as possible, but also to explore different aspects of, of a truth. So, laws, statutes, precepts, commands, decrees are all ways of referring to God's rules for life, uh, his teachings, the good boundaries that he, that he sets for us as humans. Um, there's obviously some repetition in these verses which draws out different aspects of what wisdom, of the wisdom of following God. Um, the fact that fear is included in this list, which if you think about it is, is um, the only thing that is, is a response from us back to God laws, statutes, precepts, commands, decrees are things that God gives to us to either follow or not follow. Fear of the Lord is, is in a sense, our response. But it's, but it's obviously tied very closely to obedience. Uh, it's a result of obedience. It leads to obedience. <clears throat> the fear of the Lord is to obey Him, and it is to be pure. Um, Hebrews 11 it's another example now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen for by it the people of old received their commendation by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible skipping a few verses to verse 6 So, to fear God is to believe he is real, the, the writer of Hebrews says, and to trust what he says, and to do what he says, despite what other people might think. I just think, just reading this with a little bit of imagination, uh, I don't think that Hebrews 11 is referring to Noah's fear of dying in the flood. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark. Uh, this would be understandable time to be afraid. But that's not really what it's saying. Noah is described as having reverent fear. Uh, he's not showing reverence for the flood. He's revering God uh, enough to believe what God says uh, will actually come to pass. Uh, so Noah's fear is closely linked to his trust in God's reliability. When God says something, it is going to happen. And I'm so convinced of that, I'm going to do this ridiculous thing. Or what will be perceived as ridiculous Uh, imagine all the people that must have walked by Noah while he was building the ark. Um, There's a lot of ordinary days probably when people were going about their business and must have looked at him and ridiculed him. What a fool. What a colossal waste of time and resources. Uh, What a self-righteous, self-important loser to think that he alone has been warned by God. (laughs) Uh, I didn't get the memo. Who Who does this guy think he is? Um... What a temptation. You know, this is just one example, but I think most of us know something about this. Uh, he has reverent fear. He constructs the ark, meaning his fear of what people might say about him does not prevent him from trusting what God has said. Uh, Noah is a, a positive example uh, for us, but I think most of us know what fear of people is like. It's the number one obstacle to fearing God rightly. It's what we think people will think. It often, at least in my own life, rises up and overshadows uh, the importance of obeying God for me. Uh, what will people say? What will people think? What will the social ramifications be of, uh, of me doing this or following the Lord? In almost every area of Christian obedience, fear of disapproval from people uh, can cripple our relationship to God. Um, I think, for me, a helpful uh illustration is just a ima- you know it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination for me to remember being back in high school and uh, being young and and shallow and insecure and you go to a party you've been invited to a party and you walk into a room and it's crowded the whole school is there you walk into the room full of people and what's on your mind what's going through your mind um but I'm not the only person that's ever been. But uh who's here? Of the people in this room, whose opinion do I care about? Who do I want to impress? Who would I hate to disappoint? Whose look of disapproval would crush me? Um do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> Does this ring any bells? I feel blank stares from everybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever the answer might be, those are the people whose expectations I'm going to try to meet. Right? The people that I admire and I want to like me, those are the people whose expectations I am going to try to meet. These are the people I fear. (laughs) This is what the Bible means by fearing God sometimes. The people whose opinion most matters to me. And my fear of them means that I will constantly be trying to please them. It's a fear of disapproval from them. Uh... We'd all like to say that God's approval and God's opinion has the most influence over our lives, has the most pull. Uh, but if we're honest, I think this is often untrue. Not always, thank, thank God, but, uh, but often it's untrue. Often my concern for the impression I'm making on other people causes me to lose sight of, of who God is calling me to be. Uh, a classic <laughs> negative example of someone whose fear of people wins over his fear of the Lord is King Herod, the Herod that beheads John the Baptist. Um, I'm not going to go into any depth about this story for the sake of time, but but uh, Herod knows that John the Baptist is a righteous man. He doesn't want to behead him, but he's just promised to give anything that his young... Stepdaughter has, has asked for and she has asked for his head on the plate. And so he doesn't want to disappoint his big party. He wants to seem like a magnanimous, wealthy guy who snaps his fingers and things happen. And he doesn't want to look like an idiot in front of all these people. And that outweighs his fear of the Lord. Um, related questions. Uh... Whose word do I trust about myself? Whose evaluation of me do I believe and take seriously? This is related to the, the party, the high school party. <laughs> Whose opinion of me actually really matters? Um, is it my family? What they think of me that, that uh, most impacts my behavior? Uh, is it my friends? Do I trust their evaluation of who I am? Is it my own evaluation? Is it just about me and how I feel about myself? Is that, is that what it is? Or is it God's evaluation of who I am? So, this is for me, this is really fascinating because this, this, is, this is what I mean by fear of the Lord. It's, it's, it's putting more weight on God's evaluation of, of who I am than I do anywhere else. It's uh, trusting His evaluation of me. And yet, even though it's fear of the Lord... Um, we can begin to see how fearing God like this means trusting his evaluation of who I am in Christ. Which is, in in essence, to receive the comfort of the gospel itself. Uh, Who gets to have the final word about me, we ask. Uh, If I fear the Lord, then I have to believe what he says. Um, it's believing in his love and his acceptance that I have through Jesus Christ and saying, actually, that has the authority. I fear God, so I believe that, and I trust that. Even if I feel like a loser, even if everybody else tells me I'm a loser, um, uh, fearing God in that context has to do with trusting what he has said about me through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Fearing him means giving more weight to his evaluation than I do to my own or to the evaluation of others. Um... What I should say is, who am I to say I am not forgiven and accepted when God says that I am? That's fear in God. Who am I to say that I'm not forgiven and not accepted when God says that I am? In other words, true fear of the Lord does not produce salvation anxiety. It produces salvation security because it's believing his words to us about... um, his act of salvation. Remember, uh, in the beginning, I said that the fear of the Lord is hard to relate to because we um, because we can't imagine a healthy human relationship in which fear is a part. Right? There's no, you know, fear should not be functioning in in a, in a human relationship that's at all healthy. Um, <clears throat> I think there actually, is, when it comes to fearing the Lord, there is one way in which fear does and should enter a loving relationship. And uh, hopefully I can articulate this well. But think again, the example of a marriage. It is not the fear of our spouse or the fear of what they might do to us. Rather, it's the fear that can only come from loving them deeply and caring about the quality of the relationship. Um, The more I love my spouse, the more I hate to do or say anything that would strain and jeopardize our marriage, and our relationship. So if you think of a husband and a wife uh, who've been faithfully and happily married for, say, 30 years, their marriage has been a source of mutual support and strength through hard times. They've grown as individuals through their marriage and as a couple. They've raised children together, maybe. Um, All of life's experience for the past 30 years have been shared. Their relationship is a precious and priceless thing. Why in the world would either of them do anything to threaten it? There's a kind of fear of losing something so good and precious that it calls us to genuine faithfulness. Uh, It's like the feeling, this is a a stupid example, but it's like the feeling we might get if we're told to carry a priceless antique vase across the room. Uh, I'm not afraid of the vase, uh, I love the vase, it's beautiful and, and valuable, so I hold it gently and step carefully across the room because it matters, because it's a precious and a good thing. And that's a, that's a kind of fear. It's a fear of, which which isn't paralyzing, but it's a fear that actually leads to faithfulness. Um, so here we see that true fear of the Lord is joined seamlessly with loving Him. It's, it's inseparable from love of the Lord if we fear Him in this way. Fear and love are not at all in conflict when we truly desire to please the One who made us and loves us, <clears throat> so I want to move towards the home stretch here, um, just to review sort of what what I, what I was trying to accomplish here, and then I want to end with a brief reflection on uh, on forgiveness. So we've we've been looking at all these different biblical encounters with God, and that. I think we've seen that fear is is actually a reasonable thing, given that we're small and finite and God is our maker, but also given that we are sinners and he is holy. um, In these ways, the fear of the Lord is an appropriate thing. We've also seen that fear of the Lord is a daily choice, a mundane daily choice that bears fruit. It bears the fruit of obedience. Uh, It means that we respect his expectations of how we should live over the expectations of others. It means we respect his evaluation of us in Christ, uh, giving it more weight than, than any other evaluation. Um, we've seen that fear of God leads to confidence in our salvation, not anxiety about it. And lastly, uh, that a relationship of love, um, the relationship of love that God offers us is so precious that the fear of jeopardizing it in any way, is an aspect of loving him. Um, but uh, I want to just, for the for the for the sake of uh, trying to hedge off misunderstandings, because um, I've spent quite a lot of time talking about holiness and unholiness and and the liability that our sin poses before the Lord, and the question uh, that comes to mind is, well, well, yeah, I mean, a lot of those examples are. Peter experiences it um, but lots of people in the Old Testament experience it um, what difference does it make that Jesus is actually atoned for our sin on the cross you know, do we still have that is it still appropriate for us to have uh, fear of the Lord in that way that we are unholy standing before a holy judge um, and I guess my very imperfect answer is yes and no <laughs> um <laughs> The the Book of Hebrews talks about um, that we come to a throne of grace. It's only because of what Jesus Christ has done that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, because he is leading the way. He is the pioneer of our faith. He goes ahead of us. Uh, What used to be a throne of judgment is now a throne of grace. And so, in that sense, uh, there is... um, the, the presence of the Lord is now a safe place to be again. Not because we manage to be holy, not because we are without sin, but because Jesus has covered us with his righteousness. Um, and so, that that aspect of fearing the Lord is different now. I think it is different now. As we look to the atonement, uh, it's not completely gone in a sense because we still existentially know that we're sinners. <laughs> Uh, we're in a state right now in which we are we are we are viewed by God as having the righteousness of Christ by faith, um, but we're still sinners. We know it. God knows it. Our sin is still uh, an offense. It's just an offense that's been paid for already. Um, and so, uh, something that I found interesting. I'm not. am not actually honestly sure whether this is what what the psalm is getting at, but. Um, in Psalm one thirty, it's just one, it's just two short verses, but it's a it's a psalm that I've found to be very very encouraging, uh, and raises a whole other aspect of what fearing the Lord is. And for me, this is a this is it's almost a uh, the way in which our experience of His goodness and His love for us and His kindness in the sacrifice that He that He has made catches our breath, it sort of fills us with a different kind of awe. Um, Psalm 130 says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Um, Now, on the face of it, that seems like a weird thing to say. With you, there's forgiveness. Shouldn't he say, with you, there's forgiveness, so I don't have to be afraid. (laughs) Right? Uh, But no, there's a fear and a reverence and an awe that comes with and is appropriate to receiving forgiveness from God. He didn't have to do it. And yet it's our only hope. Um, And that's where I'm going to stop because I don't have anything more to say. (laughs) But um, would anybody like to
1: start a discussion
0: ask a question or make a comment maybe yeah that,
2: Daniel maybe that word there fear is more like honor you know in mm. other words uh, I don't know in the ancient Near East you know all the nations had their gods mm-hmm. and I think they probably used the word for any god no matter what his character Mm-hmm. Um, I just think and, and maybe other thing too um, So maybe it's not really a perfect parallel with English word.
0: Yeah no I mean and this is this is the NIV. I think in uh, a lot of other translations say serve with reverence. And so there's an aspect of, of uh, it's, not, it's certainly not fear in the um, <clears throat> in just a simple, it's sort of like fear, fear of something, fear of what God might do. It's more kind of uh, the kind of fear that I've been talking about, um, about about sort of revering him in awe, which has everything to do with obedience. And yeah, anyway. Yeah, because this has almost a
2: sense of hedging on beloved or, you know, uh, like there's something, you know, because... Hmm. He does this good thing that we hold him in high esteem
0: or something. Yeah, I mean, but it could also just say, I mean, it could also just say, but with you there's forgiveness, so you should be praised. It doesn't say that, though. You know, it's, it's, there's something, there's other places that do say that, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that in this particular case, there's something uh, of kind of an awe filled reverence in response to his the so fact that he's forgiven that, us. Even
2: if you substitute the word revered, yeah. There's a um, there's a goodness
0: to it. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
0: He said that there's the even if this word feared is translated revered, which it sometimes is, like there, you know, because of your forgiveness, Lord, you're to be revered. It's still uh, an expression of goodness to revere God.
2: still depends on his goodness, you mean.
0: Was that what you were saying, Daniel? I don't know. <laughs>
2: it says something about the person or the entity that is being revered mm-hmm. that it's elicited in a positive way. Mm-hmm. It's a good almost an affection or an
0: yeah, I mean, it, in a sense, I think it's, it's, it's thankfulness. <laughs> it's responding to something that's been been done for you, which is good, and it's a response of gratitude. Um, yeah. Sorry. Anybody else?
3: Yeah, Nick. I don't know if I have a frame the question, but just talking, I sort of think about like the, where the fear of God and Praying to God, where they're in, how you pray, with that fear of the Lord, and I find sometimes I don't want to come to God like shaking my fist at Him and telling mm-hmm. Him what I think of Him, mm-hmm. and if that's compatible with fear, and stuff. I don't really know what the question is, but mm. I'll throw words at you and you throw back.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, that <clears throat> that raises a whole sort of maybe another way of asking that question is what what role does lament play in the worship of God because essentially what you're what you're describing is sort of shaking shaking your fist and telling God what you think of him basically what a lot of the lament psalms are doing Um, they are it is something that that uh I found helpful about the lament psalms is it's not it's not simply uh, grumbling about God to somebody else um, because that's there's a difference between grumbling and lamenting in the Bible. (laughs) the 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 main difference being when you when the people grumble in their tents in the wilderness, they're grumbling about Aaron and Moses. Um, They're not going to God. They're going to each other to complain. Uh, The audience isn't God. But with lament, the audience is God. You're coming to Him. And the very act of coming to Him means that on some level, even if you're terribly angry, you're still still honoring Him that He's the one to go to, that He is good and should care about the situation, that He is powerful and should be able to do something about the situation. If you have a low view of God and you think He's just a loser or he's, He's not powerful enough to respond to me anyway... The lament Psalms wouldn't exist. People would just grumble. <laughs> uh, so the, the lament, even though the lament, uh, lament, uh, or as you say, shaking your fist to God about something, even though that seems to be on the surface quite irreverent or, or f- seems to be a failure of thanksgiving, a failure of praise, um, in reality, I think they are, uh, they're still coming from a place of faith in the lord as as the one as the only court to bring a complaint to. And actually that is that is honoring to god. <laughs> Even if god has to eventually correct us <laughs> or correct our perception or give us a new a new picture of reality, uh he certainly receives those lament psalms and doesn't doesn't blast david out of the water for saying them. Um, And because I think every every lament psalm in some way acknowledges the the greatness of God. Um, What I know about you, Lord, in terms of your power and your goodness and your care and your faithfulness, it doesn't measure up to the situation that I'm in right now, right? That's a lament comes out of that tension. Like, this situation on the ground is not good, and yet, I know that you are good, and that you can do something, and that this shouldn't have happened. Why? You know that you know. So that it's 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 raw. It's a raw response to that reality. But it wouldn't happen unless the psalmist had a high a high view of who God was. Um, and so, I don't think it's uh, yeah. On, on some level, the, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with lament psalms because they seem cheeky <laughs> it seems like what do you how, who are you to say those kinds of things to god right and and maybe some of us feel the same way when it comes to forcing our anger and our frustration to the lord but uh i think honestly that the most important thing to remember is that god is god is the audience for whatever you're actually experiencing and you take it to him and that's actually much more honoring of him than to say Psh, who is he anyway he's no help. <laughs> uh, who is he anyway? He's not um, he's not in a position to help me anyway. And anyway, does that make sense? I'm not sure whether that's... Yeah. Yeah.
3: I'm curious if you have any, thought, any thoughts on, on the intersection between fear of God and faith. Mm-hmm. You mentioned pulling back the veil not just that you could see God and, or not that the people in your example could... Observe God to some degree and then reveal. Mm-hmm. Close. Many times I've wondered about it and wondered why hasn't God revealed Himself a little bit more mm-hmm. so that it yeah. wouldn't be so necessary? I know mm. if He was, yeah, 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 if He was all powerful, like, would He going away? But somewhere in between, He would have
2: yeah.
0: been. Just, just a little more than the ordinary everyday life. Yeah, <laughs> I totally, I totally relate to that. I've often felt that way about friends that aren't Christians and be like, Lord, you could just show some tiny little something to them and they would believe you and uh yeah i mean i don't i I don't know um, I do think sometimes um, I do think sometimes that it's easy to think oh i would I would have such faith um if god was much clearer if god showed himself much more clearly with no ambiguity and and no removed every possibility of explaining it away or <laughs> whatever and i don't know sometimes i think that's naive because uh i think faith is always necessary i i i, I, I totally sympathize with the, with what you're saying though you, why, why, wouldn't it be nice if faith wasn't necessary <laughs> <laughs> but but I think it always is, because because um, pe- people, including ourselves, are incredibly capable of not believing things we don't want to believe, even if all the evidence is right in front of our face. And I think, uh, to me, the uh, the most sobering example in the New Testament, forgive me if, I, if those of you who are at Brie I probably say the thing, same things over and over and over again, but... Um, is in the Gospel of John after the after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And you'd think like, okay, everybody that sees that, or even everybody that talks to an eyewitness who saw that, is obviously going to believe in Jesus now. Only God can do that. Only God can reverse death, you know. And it's true that some of the people that are there give their lives to Christ and follow him from that point on. The rest of them decide to kill him and where the people that are there the witness that witness it run back and tell the high priest what happened, and it's because the high priest believed that that happened, they say, "He, this guy's trouble, we need to get rid of him now. And so what's that about? It's it's uh, in the face of the clearest evidence uh, of, of Jesus' divine identity, it's that clearest evidence that causes them to resist him harder. Uh, and that's terrifying to me because it makes me think, gosh, you know, uh, well, it, it, it's, it's also a, um, another really interesting example of this kind of thing is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where, where Jesus tells this parable, there's, you know, there's a rich man, there's this poor man named Lazarus um, who begs outside the rich man's gate every day. They both die. The, the poor man is brought to heaven and is with the angels. Uh, the rich man dies and is in hell, and he calls across this great chasm between heaven and hell and says, "You know, um, first of all, he asks Lazarus to give him water, some water to cool his tongue, and it's like that doesn't. It's not how it works anymore. <laughs> uh, he's not your servant anymore. Um, but then he says something really interesting. Allow me to go and tell my brothers, you know, about." About reality, basically, so that they would know and not make the same mistake that I made. And the response is, they have Moses and the prophets. They have everything they need. They're like, well, what do you mean? Like, wouldn't some vision of their, of, of, uh, convince them? Not necessarily. <laughs> if they don't want to. And so, the, w- w- what, what that parable is getting at is that actually there is, there is enough evidence here. For us to believe in the truth, uh, the question isn't is there just not is there enough evidence or not? The question is like, are you gonna are you gonna submit to the evidence that you already have? Uh, and that's yeah, I don't know. On the other hand, there are experiences that people have had that have totally thrown them for a loop and that have really changed the course of their lives too. So that's so I'm not saying that it's all bad and a ridiculous thing to hope for. Um, I'm just saying to hold out for some dramatic spiritual experience, and, and and to assume that that would make the life of faith easier, or that would convince my non-Christian friend. I, just, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Do you know? What I mean? Is that? i mean? I'm not sure if that's helpful or not. But was, yeah, yeah. You could, um, yeah. you're
3: pointing out three passages, especially hmm. the one where the priests uh, you know the, the, the that. Yeah, this is a miracle and but their priorities are they don't want to lose their power, so yeah, they it's don't just, have it all mixed up yeah. with the high school party, right? Yeah
0: yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah.
3: A follow-up
2: question to your examples that I hope doesn't take us too left to field, but I always struggle on those points of f- uh, predestination versus free choice. Mm-hmm. So like like what is that intersection and how do we make sense of that mm-hmm. if there are examples in front of you, and some people choose yes, and some people choose no. Mm. And yet, some people are written in the book of life, and some aren't. Mm. Um, I guess it goes kind of back to
3: time being a creature, and however mm-hmm. God makes that work.
0: Like. Mm. Oh, gosh.
3: <laughs>
0: Joshua, take it away. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, yeah um, I uh, I can't give a good answer to that but I can give just a, a couple of thoughts um, that I think are important to keep in mind I guess when um, when wrestling with that question is you know how is it that God is truly truly sovereign and truly has control over Everything that happens in his world, including what happens with me and in my heart and everybody else, how is that the case? And how is it also somehow the case that, that uh, my choices are real, not just a an illusion? <laughs> right. um, and I don't think um, I don't think there's any way in which we can, in a, in a neat mechanical way, explain how those two things are related. But we can say that the Bible affirms both, in different ways, in different places, over and over again. And so, and the Bible also doesn't attempt to explain how both are true—that God is really in control and sovereign—and um, that you have you have choices and it matters. What, what it does do is talk about God's sovereignty and that He is uh, all of history is in His hands. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. You know, he knows, you know, a day is like a thousand years. He, he, he holds, he holds all of history. His providence is a real thing. He's sovereign. So that we, we can't throw that out. But then the Bible is, is, is full of exhortations. You do this. To turn back to him. Stop worshipping idols and turn. Like, in what sense do any of those things mean anything at all unless God expects us to respond you know and and, and, and how, how, what does a response mean unless we have a choice <laughs> and so to me it's a um, to emphasize one and ignore the other leads us into all kinds of problems theologically and um, doctrinally i just don't think it makes any sense at all but the fact that the Bible affirms both means that somehow we have to hold on to both being a reality, even though we cannot explain the, the mechanics of it. So, I mean, one one example, I forget the passage, that does sort of push that in our face is the, uh, when Jesus tells Judas to go off and, and do, you know, go off and do what <laughs> it's been destined that you would do. But woe to the man who portrays the Son of Man. You know, yeah. it's like, whoa! <laughs> that's one of the, mo- that's one of the, <laughs> the places where Scripture like gives it to you on a platter but doesn't doesn't attempt to, to make it comfortable. And here's how it works, people. Like, like just, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not the interest of Scripture to do that. Um, and so we're left with, um, unfortunately, maybe not unfortunately, but with with uh, two truths which, which are both essential, which seem to be in deep tension with each other and yet have to be held on to, um, mysteriously, there, it's a mystery exactly how, how that works. Uh, and But this is the case with a lot of central doctrines in the Christian faith throughout church history. A lot of the controversies and uh, heresies, actually, are the result of trying to do away with a mystery and make things more rational. <laughs> that, that's what the her- heresies about who Jesus was, No, he's just a person, he's not really God, or he's just got a not really good person. Those were mistakes because they were trying to get rid of a mystery that was uncomfortable. Um, Which is
2: where faith comes in. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. 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 Um, so I don't know. There, there, was, there was a lot in the question, but I don't know. That's just kind of where um, I don't think. I don't think there's any way around having to hold both at once. Yeah, yeah Thomas. Was
2: the, uh, what, what, again, you, you go. Uh, what, is, what is the both? Both, what I, I missed that I guess.
0: That see? that we have to believe both that that God is is sovereign and that we have choices that matter,
2: and that we have choices.
0: We can choose things, and yeah. it matters. Words, yes. yes,
2: God is sovereign, but we have choices.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: But we have to live by what we choose. We gotta live by it. In other words, we have to. Um, we're responsible. There's we. He gives us free will, Mm -hmm. but then we're responsible for what we do choose to do, or what we do choose to love,
0: or Mm -hmm. what we hate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, yeah, I I think so, yeah.
2: He gives us free will, but we're responsible for our
0: choice. We're responsible for our choices because he's given us free will. It wasn't, yeah, yeah. I think that, um, and yet somehow he is sovereign at the same time, <laughs> and that and that's the part that uh, it's 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 way simpler to just emphasize one side of that and not the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it's not as if our free will and the choices that we make means that God's hands are off. And you, it's it's um, I don't, yeah, I don't know how I, I'm certainly not able to explain explain I'm that. Sure
1: it's still something about hands off.
0: It doesn't. The fact that we have free will, doesn't mean that God is no longer sovereign.
1: Oh, no. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah.
0: Any other? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, I think uh, uh, from my experience of like this kind of question, I find uh, interesting, in a sense, of because like, even this kind of question we can rephrase even from uh, secular perspective is that deterministic system, uh, mm-hmm. uh, non-deterministic system, mm-hmm. but, like, actually, you know, like, uh, when we, like, when, when uh, we really have actually, uh, one of things how I kind of see was that, like, you know, like, that even reading the creative system, like, like, before we go to the ideological, the but, like, reading, there's, like, a secular creative system. Like mathematically, for instance, you know, there's an argument theory, right? That actually makes a compatible relationship with the non-deterministic and the deterministic. Mm-hmm. And also, physics, for instance, like quantum mechanics, right? That makes a compatible relationship with the light wave particle duality. And mm-hmm. So you kind of see this kind of, in you know, a sense of like, like, um, like this kind of duality. Relationship or almost any other
0: w- w- Ways of resolving things that seem to be in total yeah. opposition to each other, but yeah. somehow, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, yeah. almost
1: like, uh, but another point is when uh, somebody, let's say, like, kind of gives up against, because of the against, like, for instance, like, how can this be compatible with mm-hmm. like, uh, with uh, you know, free bill mm-hmm. the free will and the I mean, in a sense, like, we can't even kind of, right now, solve sort the of kind of creative that created things, the system leading our, you know. But, like, uh, this is kind of, like, we are talking about the theological, the level, which is in a sense of, like, we can consider uh, higher degree of we can even solve this, like, we can't even figure out the relation between the light-weight particles. Yeah. this kind of level there, and how are we somehow expecting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Out, you see what I mean? Yeah. So, like, so, but well, we see this kind of level, another there, and my point was, we are seeing this kind of duality of, like, somehow it seems incompatible, but we yeah. are actually compatible yeah. in mm-hmm. way, and we see this not just in theology, but in mm-hmm. any academic field we go, Physics, yeah. So it's
0: unfair to accuse yeah. Christian theology alone of, of, of right. accepting mysterious things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I think that's that's really helpful. Yeah, and there's in a sense there's no reason to, like you said, there's no reason to expect if we can't quite understand how light can be both, both behave like a particle and like a wave, if we're unable to reconcile that through scientific endeavor how do we expect to explain with our finite minds exact the mechanics of god being sovereign and us having free will like yeah well we know it somehow has to be
2: true
0: yeah right, so right. but people accept people accept that light exists and that light is somehow a particle and a wave even though those two things are mutually exclusive <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Is that sort of what you're Yeah, so it's yeah.
1: like we can't even explain kind of created things yet. Yeah. Things how can we expect, like, within
0: the created order, like, yeah? Yeah
1: level of things. Yeah. Like, like for instance, like some people argue against like how can we just correct in post crowded man, mm-hmm. But if we know it's supposed to have to be true. Mm-hmm. So like we cannot give them, you know, in a sense of like it parcels of like face degree to examples. But mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. If, like
0: even like we can't even kind of explain the creative things yeah. in a sense, for like how we how we are expected to explain the creator level. Yeah, you know, like, so and, and like, it has ultimately has to do with trust, yeah, trust
3: trusting trust God, um, that He has it, He He understands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Esther. I'm. Um... <laughs> um, about what you said about um, the fearful encounters and how, for those who who do believe and have mm-hmm. these encounters with God, they maybe find that God is more real than they ever mm-hmm. believed. And um, and I think that sort of connects with with Nick's question mm. a little a little bit. Is yeah, even in lament or being angry at God, there's. There's a sense of like, are you really real? Is what you're asking, mm-hmm. and I kind of got this image of, and I think it's it's probably from The Horse and His Boy, which is yeah. the um, it's, a,
0: the, be, it's the best one. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
3: is the Chronicles of Narnia that deals yeah. with But that like, are you gonna let God be real enough to growl back? Um, yeah. There's this bit in The Horse and His Boy where Bree is like, oh, he's not really a real lion. It's just mm-hmm. like an, you know, an idiom or like an image, a metaphor. Yeah. And the people he's talking to are like, look behind you. They're like, Oh, the <laughs> a head practice. real yeah, yeah. And yeah. Aslan is really there. Mm-hmm. And then Aslan's whisker tickles Brie. He mm-hmm. like jumps out of his skin. <laughs> um, it's like, do we? And I think that's kind of that fear piece. Like, do we approach God expecting that he's going to be realer than me? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Could imagine and real enough to, to growl back. Mm. when We're growling mm-hmm. at him. Yeah. Yeah. The horses boy is, is the best one. Yeah. Is that it? <laughs> no. I, yeah. Go ahead. I'm not necessarily horses boy with that. Yeah. I know. I'm sometimes talking with people. I feel like, oh, like, I'm angry at God, I'm yelling at God, and somehow it's, like, a sign of failure. Uh, and I'm just, like, I don't connect with it, because I'm, like, when I get angry, I just, like, disregard God. Like, I just, like, it's, and I would, like, I would love to get, like, believe that God is real enough to get angry at Him, you know? Yeah. And, like, so I do yeah. feel like there's, like, a, a, like, what you were saying to mm-hmm. you were like, I, I really love it, I like that. Yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's God is somehow honored uh, in this way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels like it's dishonoring because my impulse is just to like, do forget it. So, like, yeah, be upset. I, th- I relate to that. Like when I'm really upset, is it God that I go to with that, or do I'm just like, I've got this thing over here. I can't. B- b- I can't be bothered yeah. with God right now. Yeah. And, and th- <laughs> why is that? Because maybe I don't <clears throat> believe or want to believe that He's as real as He really is. And and that's that's a challenge to me. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I I think that I'm sort of challenged by the lament psalms in that way. N- not because like, ooh, they're being irreverent, but because like, wow, this guy really believes God okay, like, should have an answer for this. <laughs> he's not he's not giving up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think
3: um, another example from
0: scripture 2 is, is in Job where mm-hmm.
3: Job. You know, really strong terms like "come out here and defend yourself, God." Yeah. But like, why are you, why are you not paying attention to this? Mm-hmm. And that is when I mean, God thunders back, mm-hmm. literally, and this, this amazing
0: whole section that is about the fear of Lord in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, but yeah, creature, C- creature, yeah, creature, <laughs> creator. Or yeah. yeah. Like. All those questions, all those questions that Job can't answer. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of. Reminding him, you're not the one that made this. You're not the one who's yeah, yeah.
2: It is kind of interesting in Job, like that tone shift. I think of God kind of being more gentle with Job, and then then he gets like kind of like mm-hmm. puts Job in his place. hmm so, yeah.
0: yeah. Who is this? That, who is who, who is this? The darkens understanding or darkens thought without understanding? I forget what the line is. Yeah yeah. This can, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm.
2: Yeah, Daniel. I was still thinking about that comment. If God would just make himself a little more clear, mm. i have so much faith. Mm-hmm. And uh I think I think um that wouldn't be faith in some sense mm-hmm. because it's the carcass before the horse. Mm-hmm. And faith is evidence of things unseen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. unseen. Yeah. and the other is that God did make himself that clear as yeah. you pointed out in yeah. Romans 1 where it says the things about God, his divine attributes mm-hmm. and his eternal power mm-hmm. are clearly seen yeah. from the things that he has created so that men are without excuse mm-hmm. but they suppress the truth mm-hmm. because of their sin mm-hmm. and exchange the truth of God for a lie. hmm uh, so it's 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 our nature that is denying. It's like a, a coil spring are just suppressing yeah. But it's yeah. it's, it's always keeps
0: want. pushing back, yeah, yeah, yeah. And
2: what makes the situation worse is that it's our unbelief that prevents him mm. from revealing himself. Mm-hmm. And like Jesus couldn't do any miracles in his own town mm. because they refused to believe. So
0: I I've got big I've always had big questions about that text just yeah. Spread me the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Almost every time he healed somebody, he you said, Your faith. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah. So everybody's thinking it's Jesus. In a sense, it is, but it's really mm-hmm. it's their faith and somehow he's catalyzing it. as mm-hmm. a conduit, but it's really their faith. You want mm-hmm. to believe him, And so mm-hmm. it's it's our yeah. unbelief that is preventing him from entering from the spiritual realm to the, to yeah. the
0: physical one. That's a really interesting response to, the, to your question from earlier. The, actually, actually, it's like we would like to. In a passive way, we would like to believe that, like God reveals Himself, we would respond in faith. And at least in in uh, in Jesus' case, as a human being walking on the ground, you know, like he resp- he reveals Himself to those that do that show faith to Him. It's sort of it's it's that's really interesting.
2: But well, He wants us to have spiritual eyes. Mm-hmm. He has ears to hear. Let Him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Mm-hmm. And Jesus often said, "If you have ears to whoever has ears to hear." Mm-hmm. so we have physical sensory three receptors mm-hmm. but we also have spiritual ones mm-hmm. but we have to tune into them and that's mm-hmm. what faith is it's not that there's no evidence mm-hmm. it's that it's perceived by different different part of your being mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's yeah. really the eternal part of us and that's mm-hmm. really where we should be functioning mm-hmm.
3: he would have been on the shore stop saying stop at Ian
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I don't know what God would have done. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. no guarantee there. <laughs> yeah, good. I
1: think uh, St. Pascal, the encumbrance about this question, like in second century, that you know, God created enough darkness and enough light,
0: he certainly God did what? Sorry. He
1: created enough darkness or shadow, uh-huh. enough, and there is also enough light. So, like, uh, I think about when I also kind of thinking about the system, like, for instance, let's say, like, if we are kind of, like, thinking about, like, we are trying to create a system. Let's say we are trying to create a system, um, like, a security system. I mean, I think the proper system has to be there's, you know, proper amount of transparency and proper amount of the price. So, like... uh, even like we filmmaker, we cannot can like 100% transparency, or 100% you know, uh, privacy. That we need a kind of proper balance of it, it we'll be trying to generate the security system with the current, you know, the bank account or whatever. So I hmm. think, um, like yeah, so like even like kind of human level of it, I think when we kind of jump out to his like, definite level of like what uh, we see is I think he created. It's like his reason that we cannot overestimate and underestimate. It's kind of like optimized this kind of boundary of condition. Mm. You know. And then like how do we access that? It's the the requires that face. Uh that face kinda of even that verse like you know, forgiveness and innocence of justice. Mm. In a sense, is not compatible. But like a, an incompatible, but like the face that kind of makes this new relationship, incompatible relationship into a compatible mm-hmm. forgiveness and justice compatible Your mm-hmm. Christian uh, face and things like that. And the face is obviously like, I kind of also agree with the Pascal viewpoint of faith. Faith mm-hmm. is never contradictory to reason. Mm-hmm. There's a sphere of reason. But it just the face includes the sphere of reason, but it just goes beyond it. Mm. So, mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, it's the what the last step. That's why Francis Pascal said the last step of reason is to recognize there are things beyond reason. Mm-hmm. The face yeah. goes just beyond the right. a boundary of reason, and, and it, that requires successful yeah. relations to this a lot of incompatible mm-hmm. things become compatible within this face.
0: But the, that's actually a rational statement to say that there are things beyond reason. Yeah. That's place Pascal? Yeah, place Pascal.
1: Last step of reason is to recognize.
0: Yeah. Well, I may call it a night. But thank you, everybody.
1: Yeah.